Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. In this episode, we're going to think about chronic pain and how that might link with overproductivity, perfectionism, high striving, and not listening to your body when it tries to tell you no. In my work as a clinical psychologist, I quite often come across different physical manifestations of the anxiety, stress, overperforming that my clients have. Ways that their body is trying to tell them that it's had enough and needs a break and needs rest. And to my help today, I have clinical psychologist Romy Sherlock. She specializes in working with people with chronic or so-called persistent pain. She spent eight years leading an NHS pain psychology service and set up Retraining Pain, a multidisciplinary team to help people with persistent pain. So today you'll hear us talking about the value of understanding pain from a biopsychosocial model. So that means we're thinking about biology, the way it shows up in your body, psychological factors like the fear or stress or anxiety you might have about your pain, and also the social aspect of it, how you relate to others, the impact it has on your relationships with other people. So I hope that this is going to be helpful for you and be aware that although we're talking about pain from a psychological point of view, it does not mean they're saying that it's all in your head. Pain is a very real experience, but there are things that you can do through helping your mind heal your body and your body heal your mind. So let's dive into the episode. Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast. I'm really, really happy to have you here. We've had a nice good chat beforehand of how we have to tolerate imperfection even when we do these things, of how many things are not going quite to plan at the moment when we are recording. We're just all of these things happening around self-isolations and being pinged and things like that. So Today we're just going to do our very best. You know, we're going to have a nice conversation about something that isn't so nice. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Romy. I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I often ask people, tell me your story. Obviously, we don't want to hear a whole chapter of your your book, but tell me a little bit about yourself and what sort of listeners get to know what you do and why you're so passionate about chronic pain. Yeah, so... Um, I trained as a clinical psychologist. Uh, I've been working as a psychologist for about 15 years now and um, started my career, uh, my qualified career working in physical health and sort of sort of fell into um, working with people with pain. I had done it earlier on in my career before before I was qualified and yeah, I just kind of fell in love with with working with people with pain, really, which sounds a bit cheesy, but um, I, it feels like there's something really different about working with people with pain because unlike, I guess, lots of other presentations, we really have to work as a team. So we really, um, you know, people who, who have pain or have, have kind of sought help before might have had that experience where, you know, we really need to kind of come at this from different angles. So 
we're, we're working with a team of different professionals. So perhaps a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist and perhaps some pain medicine um, people too. So um, I really just like working together with a common cause. And also, I think people with pain are really underserved. And so it does sometimes feel like you kind of, that the, the services, is, they're a bit of an underdog. So um, that's nice. I like that challenge too. It sounds like you're really passionate about helping those that other people might pass by. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, uh, lots, of, lots of people just find working in pain really difficult because it can feel quite hopeless or, you know, perhaps as health professionals, we're, we're trained to try and fix people. And, um, and we know that with, with chronic or persistent pain, sometimes that isn't possible. But um, we hope that even if people's pain doesn't um, improve in itself, that people can improve their relationship with their pain. And I think that's a fascinating discussion around what is the end goal, you know, what is the aim of the work you're doing with someone with pain. And we're obviously going to dive deeper into this today, thinking about what chronic pain is and what are the steps we can take and how does this show up differently for men and women. And also, obviously, my favorite topic, perfectionism, how this links with having very high standards for yourself. Mm. So let's just strip it right back and think, what is chronic pain or persistent pain for those who don't know? So chronic pain is defined really as a pain that's lasted for more than three months. It could be related to a really clear underlying issue. So perhaps somebody with endometriosis, for example, or diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. But often it is related to no clear, um, obvious injury or illness. So perhaps it's, um, it's more akin to um, a, a nervous system and a body that's become really overprotective. We don't always know exactly why. So what would it be overprotective against? Yeah, so it can be, it can be where somebody's had um, a, an injury, so perhaps a back injury or a broken bone where even though that that tissue damage has healed, for reasons we don't completely understand, the body continues to keep telling the brain that that part of the body's in danger. So the the brain takes all of that information and says, it's pain. And it's a way of protecting, it's a way of protecting that part of the body. Sometimes it, it is established from, not from a clear injury, but perhaps um, through various reasons, kind of, we always try and look at pain from a biopsychosocial model. So we look at the biology, we look at, you know, issues in the tissues, but it's not just that. Sometimes it's, you know, what's people's psychological experiences or previous traumas, what's their social situation and what kinds of things are coming up there that are creating a sense of danger that perhaps your body's trying to protect against. It sounds like there's a lot of information to gather, both from a physical and psychological point of view, through interviews, through tests, lots of things that you do in that quite multidisciplinary team that you work with. Mm. Yeah, so it, it does feel um, a bit like it's, it's kind of drawing together this, this jigsaw puzzle, really, of, you know, who is this person sitting in front of us? What's their story? What's their pain story? What was life like for them before the pain? Um, you know, have there been difficult times and events in their life like like they have for most of us really doesn't mean that we'll all develop chronic pain but for some people that might be one of the uh, one of the outcomes 
you know, what kinds of things have people tried already to um, to understand this and to solve it? So, yeah, it's like piecing together this really, it's like being a, a detective and piecing together all of this and then working out how we might be able to help that person. So it's like conjuring up lots of different ideas and hypotheses about what could be going on mm-hmm. and see if there's anything to do that is going to take that person forward. And you mentioned in the beginning that shifting the focus from fixing the pain to changing your relationship to the pain. Mm. Can you explain a bit more about that? Sure. Well, I think pain neuroscience is is kind of, is learning. We're learning new stuff all the time. And I think we can be, we, we probably can be more hopeful for people with, with chronic pain than perhaps we might have been, you know, kind of a decade ago. I think we know more. So the, the neuroscience is saying that actually some recovery is possible in almost all people with pain complete recovery is probably more possible than we originally thought so i suppose we've 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 probably pivoted a little bit over the years from just saying we're going for a purely living with pain approach that actually unfortunately people with with chronic pain don't recover and this is sort of a lifelong condition for some people that's true and for some people a change in their symptoms is also possible so i suppose my stance is is often to to kind of remain optimistic at the beginning that you know whilst you know we we hope that that people will will have a change in their in their pain experience but it's not always exactly what our goal is um sometimes it's that people actually the pain is you know is still there so you know when we do pain management programs so kind of with with groups we don't always um we don't always we don't measure whether the pain changes, but but we measure, you know, does your mood change? Does your confidence to do everyday activities change despite the pain? Do you feel like pain's in charge or you're in charge? So often then people can say, okay, so the goal, even though that would be a lovely side effect of changing the pain, um, if that can happen, that's great. But if not, what else might I get out of this sort of therapeutic process? So there's a lot about changing the quality of life for that person. They can live a richer, more meaningful life, even with the pain, Absolutely. rather than necessarily focusing on getting rid of the pain, although that could sometimes be possible. Yeah, absolutely. So then, hence why you need all that detective work to try to figure out which one is it. You know, is this a person who we're looking at adjusting to the pain, living with it, living beyond it, or is there someone where intervention is going to lead to recovery? That must be really challenging to not know which one it is going to be. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think we have to we have to sort of keep that in mind with our expectations as well. Like whilst we, we remain optimistic and we know that, you know, particularly coming at things from from lots of different angles, you know, there's usually room for improvement. Like can your sleep improve? Can a fear avoidance around your movement improve? Can we process some trauma that you've been carrying around with you that's really potentially related to what's going on in your body? But also, yeah, carrying carrying the expectation that um, that even if we do those things, it might not kind of significantly change somebody's pain. So pain is really strange. <laughs> yeah, I know you say that the pain pain is really strange. Do you mean that in the sense of we don't know where this is going to go? What what do you mean by pain pain is really strange? Well, I think like I was saying earlier that you know we'll often say you know it's it's more than issues in the tissues. So you know, and in in some ways, pain is really poorly understood. So you know, even though, like we said, we know that the, the science and the understanding is changing, 
even amongst you know in our health service it's it, we're still kind of in a very biomedical approach really to to pain a lot of the time so you know there was a really famous um article in the british medical journal about 20 years ago about a guy who'd stepped on a nail on a building site and the nail had gone through his boot and he was taken to hospital in excruciating pain and when he got to hospital and they took his boot off they found the nail had actually gone between his toes so he hadn't actually been injured at all. And this was just such a fascinating realisation, really, that it does, it, he wasn't making his pain up, but what his brain saw was a nail through his foot. So his brain is being protective and it's, it's, uh, the, the messages it's getting from the foot are, are actually something's wrong and, and we need to produce some pain. So I think that's a really good... Um, a really good way of looking actually at it that so many people they come away with those messages of if we don't really understand why somebody has pain you know is it psychological is it is pain emotional and you know unfortunately sometimes we do still still read that when we kind of get referrals and actually you know the bottom line is that all pain is physical and psychological even if you if you stub your toe or you you know you stand on something our belief systems are involved there our previous experiences of pain as well as you know the the, the kind of physical injury that you might have just um, might have just inflicted yeah it's 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 really it's just really complicated and it and it is affected in so many different ways I think the key word there is is complicated that obviously when we're talking about this in a podcast uh, it might be sort of a lure to give the three top tips on managing your pain and things like that that we kind of mentioned beforehand can feel a bit clickbaity but we're as, yeah. as trained psychologists we know the full complexity of the human condition and experience that the example you gave there with the with the gentleman with the the nail in the toe I guess there's a motivation for change there as in there's a movement towards doing something about the threat yeah. that the pain signals you know if he if he had had that pin through his foot and hadn't noticed it hadn't felt it you know that would could lead to tetanus or you know blood loss lots of things mm -hmm. right whereas brain then sends that signal you must remove this nail mm -hmm. even though the nail was not actually in his foot it's fascinating because mm -hmm. that motivates your body for action absolutely it's super adaptive yeah so hence what you, what you meant about how pain can be protective. Yes, yeah. And sometimes, unfortunately, it's, it becomes so overprotective that it becomes unhelpful. And, you know, we know that, um, that that's, that's probably a big feature in, in most people who have persistent pain, that their body has just become more and more and more sensitized. So, you know, so much so that, you know, people with, with chronic or persistent pain, it won't be unusual for somebody to say you know even even a duvet touching my leg or even somebody just placing a gentle hand on me will feel you know it will burn or it will it will be painful but we know that actually something like that isn't actually causing any damage but that their bodies just become very very sensitive so it's like it's firing off these signals that you know this this is a threat absolutely yeah and I find it really interesting when we think about the polar opposite to some of the current chronic pain conditions you're describing. The polar opposite is, uh, I guess, congenital indifference to pain. Mm. Uh, that, you know, is obviously a very rare condition. But do you want to mention anything about that and how that threat system then isn't working? Yeah. And, and you know, like you say, it's, it's very rare, but it's also very dangerous. And maybe some people would say, wow, that'd be absolutely great not having any pain. 
but my understanding is that people that have that congenital condition, you know, their life expectancy is often quite short because we because the body doesn't detect danger in the way that we need to to keep us to keep us safe. Mm, so we need to be able to feel pain. Mm. And it's unpleasant when we do, <laughs> and we really want to get rid of it. But if we don't have it, we, it would also really threaten our, our survival. It's like so many unpleasant things that we feel, I guess, isn't it? Like anxiety is unpleasant, but it helps us survive. And, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's like a manifestation in our bodies there with that anxiety, that, that, you know, that pain is there to say that something might be wrong. And then what we then do when there is actually nothing really wrong, like the duvet is not a threat, the duvet is not causing us problems, but it still mm. gives a sensation of burning pain. How can you explain that to the listeners? What, what do we do about that in treatment? So that's where working, um, you know, from several different professional perspectives comes in handy because, you know, if I'm, if I'm working alongside, you know, physiotherapy colleague, you know, they're obviously really well trained in anatomy. They can, they can be having a good look at someone. They can, you know, they can do neuro exam and check that their reflexes are okay. Have we, have we ruled out any red flags here? You know, do we know for sure that there's nothing sinister going on? So I think that's, that's always really important. But then once, once we've done that, I guess they might be, be working on things from, you know, can we very, very gently start to move the body more? Can we very gently start to desensitize those areas? And they would do that in lots of different ways. You know, often people, um, you know, just like we were saying earlier, it's actually such a specialist area that lots of physiotherapists kind of struggle with working with people with pain. It's great if you you know, you've broken your ankle and you need to kind of just get the ankle moving again. And, and in six weeks, we're probably going to have, be discharging somebody. But actually, we, we need somebody with that really specialist knowledge who's going to be able to absolutely not flare somebody's pain up. So not kind of give loads and loads of exercises where they come away saying, I've tried physio, it didn't work, it was too hard. But then there may be lots of psychological barriers as well for people engaging in any kind of rehab, you know, if pain is really scary and um, and not very pleasant, um, it's understandable that we might not we might not want to go there. We might feel quite frightened of it. We might not really feel convinced that there isn't something really sinister going on. Um, so there can all be all sorts of barriers as well, which is why it's it's so great to be able to work um, from a team perspective. Like you know, what would it look like if if you did this? What what frightens you? How might you not be able to cope with that? And what, what would that look like? And I guess that's the value of the psychologist piece of that puzzle. Mm. How do people normally take to it uh, when suggested that they will speak to a psychologist member of the team when they're coming in with a very physical sensation of pain? Yeah, that's a really great question. I, um, I wrote a blog post on this recently, actually, because it comes up such a lot. And we're sort of trying to um, to say to people at first and foremost, if you get or if, if it's suggested that you're referred to a psychologist, it's absolutely not because we don't believe that you're in pain. We know that your pain is real and we know that pain is also just really, really stressful. So if you're living with a, with a persistent pain condition, then we know that anxiety and low mood and self-criticism and all of those kinds of things often go hand in hand for that. And we also know that, um, you know, about 50% of people with, with PTSD are going to have persistent pain as well. So, so really validating that it's absolutely not about saying, oh, you know, get yourself off to the psychologist. This is all in your head. 
um, which is what people's first impression might be. So it's about helping people to, you know, if we know that this danger detection system has got really overprotective, how do we help you to create some safety? Um, and that, that's our domain, isn't it? That's, that's often, you know, kind of a, a real central um, point of our work. And, you know, potentially also looking backwards as well. Like it's not the case for everybody. But, you know, if we know that there have been sort of, you know, often a, a traumatic accident, for example, you know, people, you know, might have, have been through a real life changing injury and there might be some, some, you know, kind of trauma symptoms that are carrying on, then, um, you know, that's that's our domain too, of helping people to work with trauma and, and try and resolve that. So, yeah, actually kind of trying to work together as a team on lots of different levels, but validating and reassuring and um, and formulating. You know, we, we're big on formulation, aren't we, as psychologists, which means, you know, can we basically just piece this story together and make sense of what kind of person are you, you know, what sort of beliefs do you have about what's going on with your health? What kinds of things have happened to you before? How does that affect, you know, how you think and feel about things now, in a nutshell? Okay, so if we, if we relate all of that to your pain, then that tells us a lot. It tells us a lot about how we might um, approach it. Just a very individualised, tailored approach to the person sitting right in front of you. And formulation, for those who don't know, is kind of where we road mapping, where we're looking at all the pieces of the puzzle to understand that unique individual because a hundred people with chronic pain will be like, you know, they will have similarities, but they will have also so many differences. Yeah. So when you mentioned the link there between PTSD and chronic pain, obviously some people who've listened to the podcast before know that I sometimes talk about the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Mm. Um, so I think it's a fascinating read of how, how trauma can also manifest itself physically in the body. Can you explain a bit more about what you see there? Why is there such a link between PTSD or trauma um, and pain? Well, again, um, probably we don't um, fully understand yet, but I suppose a couple of different things bring to mind. Um, one is if somebody ha- goes through a traumatic incident and um, you know a part of their body is injured, so I use a lot of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing in my work, or EMDR for short. And it's it's really not unusual for people to, you know, you go back to a memory of something difficult that's happened and the physical sensations that are associated with that come up. So, for example, working with somebody who's been in a car accident and they've bumped their head and the head is fully recovered and you're processing the memory of the accident. I can feel pain in my head. I can feel burning where my seatbelt cut into me. So that's really not very unusual. And it's absolutely what you've just said. It's like the body keeps the score. The body just remembers. And, you know, we remember that in pictures and we remember that in knowledge and we remember it in physical sensations as well. And we know that, you know, our limbic system in the brain, which is kind of where our kind of emotional and behavioral processing happens, there's a lot of overlaps there with with pain and with trauma. So be a lot of activity in that area for both sensations of pain and and trauma. But then, you know, not everybody's been through kind of a big T trauma, you know, like a big accident or, or, or something kind of really significant. And we know that, you know, sort of having lots of difficult experiences growing up, um, it can also make us more vulnerable to lots of different physical health and emotional health difficulties but pain is one of them 
So again, you know, perhaps is it our body's way of of adapting, of of trying to protect us against, you know, we've we've been through lots of difficult experiences before. To adapt to that, we've just become really, really overprotective, um, and that's that's not unusual either for people, perhaps to have higher incidence of things like irritable bowel syndrome or migraine or chronic pain. You know, th- those things can often have you know those people can often have had you know perhaps lots of difficult early life experiences too but not everybody Mm. so there's a signal signal there that the body uh, i guess i'm quoting another book title now the body says no Mm. by gabra matei so uh, i know we're going to talk about some resources that can be helpful as well but those are two Mm. two books that i find fascinating obviously uh, the body keeps a score is quite a heavy read Mm. um it's not sort of a uh, a flick through taking a bit in here and there so that's best of under colk and if that's not for you then we'll, we'll think about some easier resources as well towards the end of our chat today but i wanted to ask you a few more other things to to do with the link between obviously psychological uh, occurrences and pain mm-hmm. so when the kind of the mind and the body connection and for a lot of people who listen obviously know that i specialize in perfectionism mm-hmm. and chronic pain shows up in quite a lot of my my clients so I wanted to talk more about the link between perfectionism and self-criticism mm. and chronic pain. Yeah, and it's it's a fascinating area. And I think just anecdotally, what I see a lot of, you know, like we said, 100 people with, with pain will have 100 different stories. But if you had to do some sweeping generalizations, I think what we do see a lot is, is people who um, perhaps do have quite perfectionist tendencies or perhaps are quite prone to self-criticism. So you know, one of my favorite questions when I'm uh, kind of assessing somebody with pain is, if you start doing something, can you stop? And, you know, when people say, oh, no, 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 it doesn't matter what's going on with my pain. I have to, I have to get it done. Okay, so, so why is that? What's that about? Your body's kind of telling you to stop. And, and no, because it just would be too psychologically difficult to leave something undone. So, and I, I guess, you know, I know that, you know, you've you've talked before on your on your podcast about, you know, this this idea of we, we do have these really tricky brains, don't we? You know, we have we aren't necessarily well evolved for our modern living and we know that we've got this threat brain that kicks off really easily. So I know pain is definitely going to um kick off our threat brain. It's like pain is supposed to kick off that alarm system, isn't it? We're supposed to take note of it. And then I think what can happen is our, our kind of our drive to do something, you know, um, is, it, you know, we're going to put the, the tendency to overpace ourselves in there or to do things right or to make sure that we're, we're liked and we're kind of well regarded in society. All of those things are really important for our survival. So I think it makes perfect sense, actually, doesn't it, that then if somebody's struggling with pain, and that's really threatening. And then, you know, perhaps it's, it's interfering with some of our roles, but we need to kind of push through the pain or, or try as hard as we can. I think that that cycle of setting very high standards for, for ourselves, overdoing it, feeling it's too threatening to kind of change your behavior, not having anything else that helps to soothe you other than just keep doing what you're doing. I think that can be a really common, um, a really common feature. In, in pain, which is why self-compassion work um, is often is often a, a, a big cornerstone of, of what we're doing psychologically. And I think that's so true because 
there's a lot of fears and blocks and resistances to pace yourself, to take a break, to slow down, to stop doing. I think it's really helpful for the listeners to maybe understanding sort of what, what boom and bust means. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, that's a really is a really common phrase that we use, um, you know, for people with pain, which is do you do the boom where you go? I'm having quite a good day today, actually. Pain doesn't feel too bad. I'm just going to clean the house top to bottom and do the 50 other jobs that I didn't get around to doing last week when I was having a really bad pain week. And you know what comes next. It's the bust. It's, it's kind of getting to the end of the day and being absolutely wiped with fatigue, not being able to sleep because you're in so much pain, worrying about what you've just done, maybe really beating yourself up as well. I can't believe I've done it again. I know, I know that this happens to me and yet I've done, done it all over again. So kind of the self-criticism and then perhaps you know, the bust might last, you know, days or sometimes weeks of people whilst they recover. And it's, it's not that, you know, they don't know that, that that's unhelpful. It's just that sometimes we just, we just don't know any other way to do it. So that just becomes the norm. And, and also sometimes mm. that's expected of us too, isn't it? You know, we have, we have families or we have a job and there isn't any choice sometimes, or it feels like there isn't any choice, but to just keep going. And also that praise that comes for pushing, pushing through the pain and overdoing mm-hmm. it, overperforming. And I guess this is something that shows up a lot for especially women that I work with. So I wanted to think about that of what you touched upon, kind of the different roles we have. So I wonder how pain, persistent pain shows up differently for men and for women. And if there's a difference to this boom and bust pattern there. I mean, I think it's pretty, pretty well known in the literature that, that pain does seem to affect um, more women than men um and and the reasons for that aren't necessarily kind of really clear cut you know it's been suggestions that there might be kind of hormonal features um perhaps women report pain more like we said before um you know the the biopsychosocial interpretation of all those different elements is likely to be different women have different risk factors um as well and and i suppose there's some pains that are more associated with women as well like we touched on endometriosis and things like that earlier yeah we know that that pain presentation tends to be more common in women and again I think you know perhaps women sort of stereotypically often do have you know different roles don't they um perhaps the more primary attachment figures perhaps for our children you know, we might be carers, more likely to be carers for other people. And perhaps there's just something about how it feels unacceptable to to not perform those roles as well, that we, you know, we just, we absolutely have to, to be able to, to follow through with that, even if we're struggling ourselves. Very different expectations from society on men and women, though, isn't it? Sort of, for men to be strong, capable, uh, never show weakness, mm-hmm. to be the sort of the strong, silent type. I wonder what that does to pain experience and reporting pain and seeking help for pain. If, if men are also been, especially the older generations, been told that, you know, stiff up a lip mm-hmm. and, you know, keep calm and carry on. I wonder if that feeds into the male experience of pain as well. Yeah, it may be. And, and potentially into the reporting of it as well. You know, just got to get on with it. Um, 
you know, I know um, it, it's certainly been a problem more than once for me where we've been running a paid management program and there's maybe only been one man on the program and they look around at all these women and they think, I can't really relate here. And it's not because there aren't men out there who have, who have pain, but perhaps their experience is, is going to be different. It's mm, difficult because I, I imagine that might also lead to a sense of alienation or you know, being hooked by a failure story that there's something wrong with me here. All the other men clearly are coping with their pain and here I am seeking help in a pain group. So that's, I guess, where the psychological management of those fears or negative thoughts about yourself, the self-criticism that might show up for those men in that group would be really important as well. Definitely. And, and even sometimes, you know, just kind of being really practical and saying, do you want to come on our next program? Because we've actually got three men already coming on that one. <laughs> and you might find some yeah. more kindred spirits um, to sort of relate to. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about making it sort of a bearable journey for them to, to kind of give them best success rates possible and knowing that these things will show up in group dynamics, you know, who, who's in the group together with us will have a, you know, an important impact on how we're responding to the treatment. So it's really fascinating discussions of how, you know, this kind of boom and bust that we're talking about that definitely has perfectionistic tendencies to it that, you know, I cannot stop even when I'm feeling like I probably should. Because mm. you're saying that even though there's painful there, the alternative or stopping can even be more painful. Mm. You know, I don't deserve to stop, I don't deserve compassion, I don't deserve to be kind to myself. I'm only worthwhile when I've achieved something. Mm. You know, how much of that piece of work is kind of included in your pain management programs where you help them find reward and fulfillment from other things than doing? It's a huge part of it. And, and you know, actually even just explaining, um, you know, as we were talking about earlier, that, you know, we are hardwired for survival. And part of our survival is really noticing that threat system. It's our ability, isn't it, to be, to fit in, to be well regarded. You know, if we if we're not well liked in, in our social groups, that's actually really, or, you know, kind of historically would be really threatening for us you don't want to get kicked out of your gang of cavemen and women because you're not going to survive very long so we're hardwired to um to want to achieve to want to to want to kind of have that social standing so then what happens to that when you have pain and maybe maybe you're not working maybe your roles as you know in the family or in your friendship groups have disappeared um it's really not uncommon for people to feel very isolated when they have pain and then the the self-criticism that can come off the back of that of you know if I'm not achieving or I'm not performing these roles then you know I'm, I'm actually just a burden that's a word that we you know we definitely hear a lot and you know the way that people relate to themselves with with pain and then feel very self-critical about it so explaining to people how normal this is and how um, appropriate it is that our brains behave in that way but also that it's it's kind of unhelpful as well because it's it's too much and and helping people to say okay so how do we balance that out with you know how um with with self-soothing and that's not about just saying oh I'll just lie in bed all day I won't do anything because that's not very soothing either but it's about saying how do I find alternative ways of looking after myself, of responding to myself with kindness, which might be a really new skill for people. People might have never been taught that. They might have no idea how you do that. So some really, really practical work around practicing those things. So there's a lot of insight, realizations, and then putting it into practice step by step, tolerating a little bit more self-kindness and Mm self-compassion 
to be able to lower some of those standards to a reasonable level where it doesn't become all or nothing. You know, that's the, the whole boom bust pattern you're describing there is very all or nothing that, you know, one day or one week I might blast through everything and then I have such a pushback from my body saying no that I can't achieve anything leading to those failure thoughts hooking you. So it sounds like it's more about finding some sort of a happy medium that works for you so you can still achieve things that are meaningful to you but not burning yourself out in the process. Yeah, really thinking you, you touched earlier on today about, um, about values with people and that's something that we do a lot because I think our, our sense of identity can sometimes get a bit lost. You know, well, I was that and did those things and now I'm this and do these things and, you know, kind of who am I? So really kind of revisiting with people about, you know, what are your values? What's important to you? How do you want to show up in the world? And then, okay, so if you can't, you know, run that marathon or you can't throw the kids around on the floor anymore or you can't kind of go and work the hours that you used to do, how do we still, you know, live in line with those things that are important to you, potentially still with kind of sometimes rather unwelcome passenger on the bus, which is pain. And those passengers also bring friends in terms of negative thoughts. Definitely. Anxiety and self-criticism and depression. And yeah, all of them. They're all friends, aren't they? Yeah. All saying that, you know, why, why can't you do this? You're so rubbish. You used to be able to do this. Other mums can do this. Other dads can do this. Uh, flinging the kids around. It's really difficult when you have that sort of constant barrage uh, from that inner critical voice. And you know, b- being very heavily pregnant as we're recording this, I can sort of temporarily see how my body is obviously not able to do things that I did previously. And it's very, very easy to go into that compare and despair. Yeah. You know, I, I can't chase my son at the moment. <laughs> I'm too pregnant. <laughs> I look like I've swallowed a basketball. So when we think about that joke society, it can be really difficult because those thoughts then hook people. Mm. I think actually that it impacts on your self-worth, mm. the way you see yourself, your identity. Does that show up a lot in the work that you do? Yeah, I think it, it it's ever present. Um, and, you know, it's so individual, isn't it? Some people really roll with that and they, you know, perhaps from the support they have from other people or, or just the way that they are before this pain problem came about. Lots of people just find their way, don't they? It's not like saying everybody with pain needs to see a psychologist. People find their way to still do what's important to them. But like with everything, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be a a group of people, a big group of people often who it's just so difficult to find your way back to what you want your life to look like. And I think acceptance um, is is such a big part of that, which can feel like a really difficult word with people with pain, because people will often think, well, that just means resigning yourself to this life that I don't really want. And, you know, I think it's, it's really about thinking can we just have a willingness for for pain to be here at the moment we can't say for sure um you know what the future is going to look like um whether that will improve or resolve or stay the same but can we just have a willingness just right now for that to be there so when people get into that real i think that's the trickiest thing often when people are in a massive tug of war with the pain why is it there when is it going to go? I, you know, like it's, it's unacceptable for it to be there. I think that's when people struggle the most to kind of find their values and how they, they want to live alongside because they don't want to. Mm, they just, it's hard to allow that pain in because it means that, oh, that means I'm giving up then. I'm thinking that I have to resign into it always being like that. But acceptance is not resignation. It's 
it's just stopping that struggle. Like you're describing, we're using a lot of energy and um, force to try to struggle against the problem that often makes the problem worse, like that tug of war experience. Some of these things that, that we're discussing today for the listeners who don't know, obviously come from a particular type of therapy form, which is called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very based around values against stopping the struggle and accepting difficult experiences that show up for us, like thoughts and feelings, and then changing our behavior so that we go towards a more meaningful, fulfilling life, even with pain in this example. And there's a great book that I saw on your bookshelf um, before we started um, recording by, uh, that's called Living Beyond Your Pain, right? Yes, yeah, it's one of the, one of the resources I often recommend because it's, um, it's a great self-help workbook. So it's, it's, not, it's designed for people to, to read and work through individually. Uh, but it's also great, um, it's a great kind of accompaniment for kind of people who are working in pain as well. So it helps us to understand of how we create that meaningful life. So that's a book by Joanne Dahl and Tobias Lundgren, right? Yes, that's the one. Who just happened to be my former lecturer. So I wanted to give a little shout ah, out to that book. Nice. Yeah, they're a fantastic book. <laughs> um, so for, for the people who are listening, that doesn't mean, again, we want to really reiterate that Romy has never said at any point here that the you know psychological intervention for pain means that we think that you've made it all up. It just means that there are ways we can help soften your stress around it, the way you might be overdoing things, adjusting to your pain, living a life that's meaningful even with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that brings us to the sort of the pause purpose play questions that we often ask at the end, because you kind of touched upon that. How do we then bring them back to those values? How do we bring meaning into people's lives? How do we find purpose when life feels so painful? Yeah. And I think, I think we have to, we have to look at, you know, if we, if we if we just take you know pain out of the equation for a minute and we think about you know how do you want to show up in the world what's important to you you know people will often say well you know it is my my family or my children or it's the meaning i get from my work you know it's like okay so how do you live a life that is really purposeful potentially alongside this pain you know it's it's not about one or the other they're not mutually exclusive what's purposeful for you I think um, there's a couple of things. I think there's, for me, there is such purpose in doing this work because it's, like I said, I think that people with pain can often be really underserved and it just makes it very meaningful when you do this work in the right way and people um, improve. It is just, you know, it's just magical when that happens to, to feel that you've, you've been able to go on that journey with somebody. For me personally, I think it's, it's it's been about you know having worked in in kind of environments and systems that are very you know it's very hard to exactly find your purpose it's hard to um to do what feels right for you now actually just being self-employed and being able to you know have the work-life balance that I want to have to be able to spend time with my family um to be able to to show up in in the workplace in a way that makes sense to me that is huge that's really, really nice to hear that that's obviously something you think about. It shows up in your work, but also outside of your work, mm. what's purposeful. And we've touched upon the, you know, the pause element already quite a bit today, thinking about the meaningful aspect of taking a break before you break, as I often say. And the chronic pain is, <laughs> is often a symbol of how our body has tried to say no for quite a while and we ignored it. So not giving them a chance to pause and break. Mm. How do you switch off? How do you find pause? 
I will hold my hands up and say that, I mean, I, you know, as psychologists, you know, we know all about benefits of things like mindfulness. And I want to be that person that does that great daily practice. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, I do struggle with that. But I think one of the things that I do is, I, especially, like I said, now kind of being self-employed is if I, I try to pause in nature. So and now, you know, if you can have a, a short lunch break, I always try and go outside. I'm lucky to live in Yorkshire where we've got a very close to kind of lots of beautiful scenery. And I do a lot of um, my work is very informed by, uh, by polyvagal theory. And, you know, Deb Dana, who um, is, is one, of the, uh, one of the kind of main sort of creators of, of that, um, she talks about glimmers. And I think I really like, I like watching out for glimmers. Um, So even if I don't have time to kind of sit down and do, you know, a full kind of mindfulness practice or something like we all know that we should, but we don't, it might be around, you know, are you just watching out in your day for those little glimmers? And what I mean by those is just maybe those moments where you just maybe have that sense of contentment or satisfaction or enjoyment and you know, it can just be a glimmer, can't it? It might just last a few seconds, you know, and, and does it build into a, into a glow? Um, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But actually just, you know, having that awareness of those throughout the day is, is, is really powerful as well. And it gives a lot more realistic expectation around mindfulness practice, I find as well. I mean, for those of you people listening, you might find the Shamash Aladina episode I did around mindfulness and meditation really helpful because it talks about these kind of shorter moments that the little here and there uh, my friend Susie Redding calls it micro moments and I love that mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't have to be very long and all encompassing because then often we don't do it especially those of us who have the all or nothing standards for things <laughs> must do an hour seated meditation every day where I failed uh, and that's obviously not the aim of the game here is to kind of find little moments and it sounds like you being very mindful when you're out in nature taking a pause and kind of like pause pockets or pockets of pause is what often I call it that you can just get these little pockets in especially for busy parents or high striving people at work you know taking your eyes off the screen for a moment gazing out into you know the scenery outside the window mm. that's like a little glimmer I love that word glimmer turning into glow so I'll keep that in mind <laughs> lastly how do you then play what's playful for you well, um, I think that that's, uh, for me, the benefit of having children is that you never have, you're never too far away from play and you can always kind of access that, that inner child that, um, you know, there's, um, yeah, so kind of I think being around my kids is, um, you know, it's, and it's just sometimes life as an adult isn't always that playful or fun is it but but children are so good at doing that so I think every day my kids remind me how to how to play and and sort of be light-hearted <laughs> mm, they're really good at that aren't they because they live much more in the moment than we do than have the responsibilities on their shoulders that we do so they can teach us a lot about that so if we are teaching them as they're growing up about how to shoulder responsibility then they can teach us a lot about also how to play yeah. So it's lovely to hear that. Um, drawing things to a close now, I mean, I could talk to you for ages because I think there's a lot of overlap in the work that we both do. But let's think about a final takeaway for the listeners. Mm. What would be a permission you would want to give them or a pressure you want to take off them? I think um, that acceptance, you know, is key. It not being resignation, but actually um, just 
also just giving yourself permission that self-management is is everything really for people with pain uh, but people often need support with that so you know if you're somebody who's struggling with pain um, and you feel like you're not doing so well with it that that's really really normal um, and you know can you can you give yourself permission to do something different and you know I suppose how can you find a way of soothing yourself and developing a bit more self-compassion that's really helpful so it's partly what you do inwardly and also what you do outwardly so permission to be kinder to yourself taking some pressure off yourself pacing yourself but also permission to ask for help and support on that journey because it's an ongoing you know daily choice of how you manage that condition it sounds like so I've learned a lot about pain and how this shows up for um for us if we have high standards so thank you so much for coming on to the podcast my pleasure I hope you found this episode helpful in understanding what chronic or persistent pain is and what it isn't. And it's not your fault if you get caught up in these boom or bust patterns of overperforming and then feeling really flat out, going into avoidance or withdrawal, and then beating yourself up for it. If you are quite self-critical and you do have a pain condition that you need to self-manage better, maybe you do need a break. Go to the Thomas Connection co.uk forward slash break to download a free four minute guided meditation it's literally four minutes of placing your hand on your heart and giving yourself a compassionate break i also wanted to mention some of the resources that romy suggested in the episode two websites she suggested were livewellwithpain.co.uk and tamethebeast.org she has also suggested a book called explain pain handbook This book is written by Mosley and Butler and you can find it on Amazon. So I do hope that you have taken something away from this episode. If you or someone you love struggles with pain, to let go of the struggle does not mean that you have to like your situation. It means that you're looking at what's going to be a meaningful existence for you, perhaps even with the pain, if it's not possible to recover from the pain. So until I speak to you next time, do take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk 
And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media. <laughs>